0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: The news continues. Let's hand over Laura Coates and CNN tonight. Laura?
2: Thanks, Anderson. Nice to see you. And nice to see all of you out there as well. I am Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. Look, I mean, high noon could take a whole new meeting for Donald Trump tomorrow. Not a cowboy western, but tomorrow the Justice Department has set until noon Eastern time tomorrow to release the redacted, keep that word in mind, the redacted version of the affidavit that led to that Mar-a-Lago search. And this could move us that much closer to understanding why the government felt it had to do this as opposed to waiting and going back and forth yet again with the former administration. But let's be clear here, this also could not move, in all honesty, the needle all that much for you out there in the public, because there's a reason these things are often kept under wraps and has a lot to do with protecting the rights of the person whose home or estate, in this case, is being searched and of course, the safety of witnesses and sources. The judge said as much when he cleared the way for the FBI agents to execute that warrant back on August 8th, and saying in his written order, quote, the government has met its burden of showing a compelling reason, good cause to seal portions of the affidavit because disclosure would reveal, one, the identities of witnesses, law enforcement agents, and uncharged parties. Two, the investigation strategy, direction, scope, sources and methods, and three, grand jury information protected by federal rules of criminal procedure. Now, as for the redactions, the judge added this about what the government had to show and whether they did meet their burden, saying the government has met its burden of showing that its proposed redactions are narrowly tailored to serve the government's legitimate interest in the integrity of the ongoing investigation and are the least onerous alternative to sealing the entire affidavit. Now, I'm sure you can imagine people aren't satisfied by the thought of not having the whole kit and caboodle, as they say. So news organizations, including CNN, of course, filed requests to unseal the affidavit and for transparency on other filings related to this very search of extraordinary public interest, as did, for example, Trump's ally, Tom Fitton of Judicial Watch. Keep that name in mind for a moment. But there's what you say in public, of course, right, and what you might say in private or in the case of a figure like you're seeing on the screen, what you say in the court of public opinion and then what you say in the court of law when a judge is asking the question. Now, while Trump's team claims that they want the affidavit out there, none of the lawyers actually have anything to do or have done anything to try and get much of it released at all. So tonight, we're all waiting to see what the DOJ is willing to share with the world, even though they don't wanna share much, of course. And remember, noon tomorrow is just the deadline. We could actually find out sooner. But for now, the DOJ isn't saying much more. Now, I told you to remember that name, Tom Fitton. He's a pro-Trump activist, the president of Judicial Watch. But notably, he's not a lawyer. Tonight, we have new reporting that shows he has been playing a major role in Trump's resistance when it comes to handing over records, which might surprise you given he does have a legal team, I'll look at how that great with Trump's public bravado and growing fears behind the scenes in Trump's orbit about a potential charge or an indictment. Concerns that, frankly, might go all the way to the former president. Here to talk about all this are three actual lawyers and top legal and investigative minds. Shan Wu, a former federal prosecutor and defense attorney. Bradley Moss, a national security lawyer. And John Wood, a former U.S. attorney and senior investigator for the January 6th committee. That's quite a panel, I must say. I want to begin here for a moment because, Shan, Brad, and I'll get back to you as well, John. Can you help unpack a little bit for people? We keep hearing about the idea of the legal team surrounding Trump making poor choices. I'm being kind about this. Sort of confounding people. Got your, your head scratching, figuring out what are you doing? What's the motivation? What's the strategy here? Why was that motion and what's happened this week so significant?
3: Sure. So the problem with this legal team, and the motion was kind of the culmination of multiple months of problems, they should have been moving on this back in May. We now know from the documentation released by the National Archives that back in May they had been told that the classified records turned over in February were going to be given to the FBI. They were told their executive privilege invocation was being denied. A competent legal team would have been going into court that very next day trying to enjoin the archives from turning things over. They would have been going into court in June when the subpoenas were coming down and there were problems. They would have been going in with evidence that information had been declassified, that President Trump had declared any of this a personal record. They did none of this. They sat back and let it continue on and they continued playing games. And that led to this motion, which wasn't properly uh, fleshed out, very poorly written in my view, didn't really outline what they wanted or what basis they had for it. And has the judge coming back to them the next day saying, you got to explain this better in another filing. I don't know what you want me to do. here. I mean,
2: imagine that we talk about this with the prayer for relief. Most of the time people think about the judges, you're asking them to do something and they'll ask what are you, what's the basis for it. If the judge wasn't clear about what they were asking, is it Partly because, Shan, the questions were really being raised in the court of public opinion, never meant to actually go to the court of law. I mean, this was being fought, to your point, outside of the courtroom because the talking point was better online.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly the problem you're pointing out there. A sign of a bad legal strategy is a disconnect between the client, the communication strategy, and the courtroom strategy. And that's what we're really seeing here. That's what gives the impression that they're flailing about. They're being reactive. They should have started this a long time ago. And now that they're being reactive, they're clearly reacting to what their client wants to do, what he wants to say in public. They're trying to give some lip service to that, but they're making bad mistakes that way. I think exhibit one on a bad mistake is any of them, including Evan Corcoran, who I have a lot of respect for, used to work with him, signing or drafting a letter that says, don't worry about it. No more classified documents. That mm. instantly turns you into a witness.
2: I mean, and that's part, John, I want to bring you in here. I don't want to forget about you because, you know, you were a big part of that January 6th committee. We remember actually watching you during the actual hearings. that we are going to begin again later in September. You're a former U.S. attorney as well. You know this quite well. I, I have to ask you, knowing that all of this is part of it, the idea of thinking about This is not, I've joked around before, this is not like your your ex-boyfriend's old sweater that you don't want to give back. These are actual documents. These are things that belong to the people of the United States. You've had letters from the attorney for Trump, at least in one occasion, confirming that they were in the possession. You had Rudy Giuliani saying, you guys got the Espionage Act all wrong. It really is about if you're trying to hand them over or destroy documents. When you hear all of this, what goes through your mind?
4: Well, I I agree with my my colleagues here who have said that uh, President Trump must be getting uh, bad lawyering here. I think if he had a good legal team, in addition, he wouldn't be in this situation in the first place because they would have made sure that he returned all the documents, particularly the classified documents. So I, I don't know how much of it is the fault of the lawyers or how much of it is that they just don't have any control over their client. But it's really just outrageous that He not only has things that are public records and should have been returned under the Presidential Records Act, but that there were some 300 plus classified documents in his possession. That's really extraordinary.
2: It is. And of course, you worked on with the January 6th committee as well. I'm wondering, just based on the fact that a lot of things are having parallel, if not truly intersectional, but parallel discussions and investigations, might any of this be intriguing to that committee?
4: Possibly. I mean, one of the big questions that we don't know the answer to is, do any of these documents, whether classified or non-classified, do they uh, in any way relate to what happened on January 6th? Uh, If so, that could be, you know, potentially bombshell information, because the obvious question would be, well, why did President Trump take these with him? Did he want to make sure that Congress or the public couldn't find out what was in Mm -hmm. these documents?
2: That's the why, Brad, in terms of the what. We might not know what the affidavit says in full. It's going to be redacted. We should expect that. That's not going to be abnormal, right?
3: Correct. No, There's absolutely going to be significant redactions. One's going to be grand jury information. That's excluded by law. They're going to definitely redact the names of witnesses, particularly anyone they interviewed, anyone who provided information. And they're going to redact anything they think reflects an investigative technique. They don't want to tell people how they're doing this yet. But what we might see, and this is what I'm looking for tomorrow, is do we get insight into how they reached the probable cause of termination mm-hmm. from the facts? What they saw in the surveillance tapes that made them think not only that there was classified documents, but that there was an effort to conceal them, to relocate them. We know they found these records in other places, like the president, the former president's office, in his mm. bedroom closet. Do the, is that some of the ins- information we're going to get, and will that give us more insight into the obstruction provisions they also listed on the search after.
2: What are you looking hour? for, Shan?
1: Uh, that would be great. Yeah. <laughs>
2: <But>, uh, <laughs> <but>, uh, <laughs> I'll I have what she's
1: having. Right, yeah. <laughs> that was a
2: classic moment. Thank you, Shay.
1: <laughs> but I want to manage expectations a yes. little bit. I think it's going to look just like a solid black box, colored in. And I think it's important for us to remember, for the viewers to remember, we're not actually revisiting the probable cause. Mm-hmm. That's a done deal. And I don't think DOJ really has to measure up to some standard for the judge here. I really think if they just submit anything that's not completely colored out, it's like, okay, we redacted it. The judge is in no position to really second-guess them on matters of national security or classified information. So I think the judge really is, look, good faith effort, you gave me something I'm going to release it. I don't think we're going to see much that's very juicy about it all.
2: I mean, that sets the bar a little low. I think that they probably had to over um, be over-inclusive in some ways, right, Shan, the idea of providing this judgment. What they knew it was Donald Trump's estate. But I do agree that if the judge looked at it sort of in camera by themselves and had that opportunity, they would have been able to ascertain that the probable cause was met. John, we didn't forget about you. Thanks for being on. John Wood, Brad Moss, Shan Wu, thank you so much we will take a break here and we'll talk about why Donald Trump thinks documents that come to Mar-a-Lago stay at Mar-a-Lago. Apparently another guy got into his head. It's the one whose name we told you to keep in mind. A whole lot more about his influence and potential impact coming up next. Well, there's new reporting tonight that undercuts the Trump world's pronouncements that Donald Trump has fully cooperated with the National Archives. Sources telling CNN that shortly after investigators got those 15 boxes from Mar-a-Lago, you know, the ones back in January, that Trump began fielding calls, well, from this man. His name is Tom Fitton, the longtime head of the conservative activist group Judicial Watch, a man who told Trump what he wanted to hear, that it was a mistake to turn over any documents to the archives. He even encouraged Trump not to give up any more if the archives should come back, which we know they did several times. tourists say that Trump became obsessed over Fitton's, we'll call them legal arguments. We should mention, of course, Fitton is not a lawyer, and I doubt these are actually legal arguments, but Trump complained to the aides about the 15 boxes that were handed over, and he became more and more convinced that he should have full control over records that remained at Mar-a-Lago. He, he even asked Fitton, at one point, to brief his attorneys on the matter. A person close to former president told us this, quote, the moment Tom got in the boss's ear, it was downhill from there. Let's talk more about this and get perspective from these phenomenal people at my right and left, left and right, the camera can't tell, whatever. It's <laughs> Alyssa Farrah Griffin, Miles Taylor, along with CNN's Evan Perez, who, of course, helped break this and many other stories. Let me begin with you here, Evan. I mean, Tom Fitton, I figured many people know, but many people might not know and the influence that he is now having. It does strike you as very odd that this is a person with an extensive legal team, Donald Trump. We've seen different iterations. But this is the person who he wants to brief these lawyers?
5: He also really likes uh, the people, the legal minds that he sees on television, as you know. And, and so Fitton pretty quickly after this, uh, after the, 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 the National Archives retrieved these 15 boxes, uh, he goes on Fox and he goes on other uh, platforms, on, on Twitter and other places, and starts saying that, you know, should never have given back these boxes because these are actually inherently personal. That by virtue of the president leaving the White House with them, they became personal. That's and, not the
2: standard, though, Evan. Like, you know, <laughs> it doesn't become personal. It's like, it's not poly in your pocket all of a sudden. Right. But you kind of see
5: where Trump has now gotten, you know, some of these ideas. And, and one of the things that he is looking back at is this... Uh, case from about a decade ago, from 2012, in which uh, Finton and his group were trying to get uh, access to some recordings from the Clinton years, from mm-hmm. Bill Clinton's presidency. These were recordings that he had made uh, with uh, the historian Taylor Branch. And as a result of that, in, in the end, he was not able to get them because uh, the, a judge ruled that these were not presidential records. So they're saying this is exactly analogous. Now, of course, we know that these... the the current situation has to do with highly classified, you know, SAP, TSSCI, you know, very sensitive documents, according to the Justice Department. So it's not really the same thing. And by the way, you know, and I spoke to Fenton a couple of times for this story, and, and he says, look, in the end, Trump ended up still providing more documents to the archives. So therefore, he wasn't really listening to Fenton in the
2: end. I mean, most but not all is not going to satisfy you talking about national security, potentially classified documents, right? Yeah. You say I gave you half of it. Uh, also, <laughs> like. Oh, Miles is laughing, everyone. This is, <laughs>
6: I, I, Alyssa can attest to this. I don't even know what to say. We've seen this story so many times that Donald Trump is getting his advice from television. He ran his presidency that way. I mean, we used to joke that Lou Dobbs was the deputy chief of staff at the (laughs) White House because he would literally say to you, did you watch Lou Dobbs last night? He said what I want to do. Uh, And it would be some, you know, popcorn cockamamie policy idea. And now he's actually in real legal trouble. And he's still taking advice from people who are on TV and playing Game of Thrones. Again, (laughs) though, the, the difference this time is... You know, he's in a bad position. He's got a very bad legal team. And his fingerprints, as we've talked about before, are literally all over this. He's gone through the boxes like he is in a really, really but bad here's the spot.
2: Thing. I mean, his nickname, right, is still Teflon Don. And maybe the reason there. you know, you think about maybe he's super emboldened. He's been in a lot of hot water before. I mean, we know the history of this presidency. Is he really scared this time, Alyssa? I think he is. And I'll
7: say this. um, To use his own quote against him, I mean, he is not hiring or surrounding himself by the best people. He has a tendency to do this, by the way. Pat Cipollone, who's actually, whether you agree with him or not, a credible, serious attorney. One of the best. One of the best. Advised him against this and said to comply with the National Archives. But then he just finds kind of a crackpot, two-bit, I guess not even attorney to then advise him and tell him what he wants to do. He's also being advised right now by a woman, Christina Bob, who was asked on another network if she could confirm he did not have nuclear secrets. And she said, I don't believe he does. I mean oh, that's, that, that's, com- that's that's comforting. That's, that's comforting, but it's also get a better attorney. Then that's it's just, the
6: attorney that signed the paperwork. By the way, about whether there was any classified information left. Uh, right, and,
7: and and like it's it's sort of funny if we're not talking about state secrets or national security. You know, the actual process
2: that we should go through for archiving America's
7: state secrets.
2: So, I mean, part of this includes I understand and possibly again we're not talking about just your average paperclip here, right? These are things that are of interest. One thing that sparked this, Evan, was the idea that National Archives sort of doing an inventory and right. things that we've spoken about in the news, a Kim Jong-un letter, for example, and other things, we we don't see it here, right? These are documents we're talking about very in addition to other
5: quickly, things. Very quickly, yeah. Very quickly, they realized that there were important things, including the letters uh, to, the, to the, North, former North, well, the North Korean leader, uh, the letter from former President Obama when uh, he left office for the incoming President Trump. And, and that's one of the things they, were, they began. This is how this began. They were trying to retrieve things like that. At one point, uh, there was instructions given to uh, one of the Trump aides to try to FedEx those items to the archives. That's Wait, to the FedEx
2: classified documents. To,
5: well, these were well, yeah, I, I guess so, right? These were these were communications with a foreign leader, so they probably are a certain level of classification. Again, this was the level of you know begging and desperation by the archives to try to retrieve these documents. They're like at any cost you know they wanted to try to get these things back because these are presidential records and and they needed them
7: well and i think it's important to notice to note that there're kind of two different things here and we're going to learn more as the affidavit comes out i expect a lot of it is going to be redacted sure. but there are things that are presidential records which probably by nature are sensitive something like that i would assume you could fedex and it's not going to put anyone at grave national right, harm right. A special access program. I, I, I was a TSSCI security clearance holder. I am sure you were as well. I never once had access to a special access program. I've always that wanted is one of, that, but no one's
5: <laughs> no one's offered <laughs> no one's
7: those words. Offered we talked about it before. Words, the code word this program. is one of I the highest, highest level. Level. We, we still respect yes.
2: you, Evan yes. okay. This is
7: one of the highest levels of national security classification you can encounter. If he does in fact have those and hasn't been protecting them in a skiff that any other person would be walked into jail for that. Yeah. And they, and
2: that well that's what we're going to talk more about and learn about this affidavit and and what we will see. But again, for many people watching this and thinking about this, the phrase of who's above the law That also extends this idea of who gets to have someone bend over backwards to make it as easy as possible for you to delay what you're required to do. Uh,
5: One thing I I just want to quickly add, and by the way, I mean, reading this judge's uh, opinion that was released, uh, I think we should look at what he says when he says this is the least onerous alternative to sealing the entire document. I think he means it. I think this judge uh, clearly had seen this document. Mm -hmm. He knows exactly what's in it. And he was leaning towards. He was nudging the Justice Department. Look, you're going to have to release as much of this as possible because I know what's in it, and I know what you really need to protect. So I think, I think we can read in this document a lot of what this judge means.
2: That's a great point because the judge clearly has seen the entire entire thing and, and knows what's He says what you've got to go do it away. narrowly. He narrowly. Said. Everyone, Evan Perez, thank you so much. Alyssa Miles, stick around. Here's another reason Donald Trump's ears are probably burning tonight. President Biden's unloading on his predecessor and the extreme MAGA movement, and he's giving his midterm message a bit of a test run. So President Biden stepping onto the midterm stage tonight for the first time, and with 75 days to go until the election day of the midterms. And some say that he brought the heat. The president shattered all of his recent legislative wins, but he did save most of the fire for his predecessor and MAGA Republicans, zeroing on what could be the GOP's most vulnerable issue come this November.
1: In red states after red state,
8: there's a race to pass the most restrictive abortion limitations imaginable, even without exception for rape or incest. But these MAGA Republicans won't stop there. They want a national ban. They want to pass a legislative national ban in the Congress. If the MAGA Republicans win control of the Congress, it won't matter where you live. Women won't have the right to choose anywhere. Anywhere.
2: At an earlier event that wasn't on camera, President Biden went further, telling attendees: quote, what we're seeing now is the beginning or the death knell of an extreme MAGA philosophy. It's not just Trump. It's the the entire philosophy that underpins the, I'm going to say something, it's like semi-fascism, unquote. Alyssa Farrah Griffin is back with me, along with former Democratic Senator Doug Jones and former Special Assistant to President George W. Bush, Scott Jennings. And Scott, you have no response to the fascism comment whatsoever. We'll just move on. <laughs> <laughs> is that okay?
9: Well, I, I mean, look, I'm, I'm used to politicians throwing haymakers at each other. I'm sure we all are. Mm-hmm. Doug Jones certainly oh, yeah. is. But but what I heard Joe Biden say tonight was farther than that. I mean, he's he's essentially saying if you vote Republican, you're a fascist. He's saying that if every American doesn't support Democrats and we don't and, and we have a one-party rule in this country, democratic rule top to bottom, that you know we're democracy is somehow lost. And I, I just but he did I,
2: say he kept saying repeatedly in the on video part. Maga Republicans, Maga—I took to mean. Well, are there respect, are there
9: some Republicans he's endorsing?
2: Well, what well, my point is, I took that to mean that he was aware of the delineation that's trying to happen in the GOP as well to suggest. There are the you know your fathers, your grandfathers, your mothers, Republican Party, your own Republican Party, and then what you're seeing of the more extreme. Do you see the same?
7: I I worry it's not clear enough. And mm. Charlie Crist kind of stepped in it with uh, once he got the nomination, basically saying I don't want Ron DeSantis' voters. If you voted for him, you're full of hate. And then mm. he tried to backtrack it. I'm somebody. I think Donald Trump is a semi-fascist, but I think most Republicans are good, decent people who want lower gas prices. They want, you know, a, an economy that works for them. So I think that this this language is not helpful on the trail. I do think that he is right, probably, to tout um, the issues with abortion. That's something that's going to be incredibly animating for Democrats. But at the same time, he still does not have a good message on the economy. And that's what at, is at the top of every poll when you look at the midterm. What do
2: you think?
8: I, I just I've completely disagree on a lot of that. I think you're exactly right. He is differentiating with this MAGA faction, the Republican Party, which is dominating the Republican Party right now, in my view. They are the loudest. They're like three different factions. There are people that are pushing back like uh, Liz Cheney. Uh, Then there are just very few. Then there are the enablers who are just sitting back quietly, letting Donald Trump and the MAGA faction run the party. And those are the people that are getting nominated for the U.S. Senate in Arizona and in Pennsylvania. And you've already got uh, Senator Johnson, very similar to that in Wisconsin. They're seeing that this is a issue for uh, Democrats that in this MAGA faction. Remember, we're talking about just a few seats here. At the end of the day, we're talking about a few seats. There are very few seats in the House that are really in play. So you're talking about trying to differentiate and make a statement about this faction that I maybe y'all agree or disagree, but I'm telling you, I think it's but a threat to I would to say
7: you, you, in some ways, are kind of a lost art in the Democratic Party is what I would call a moderate Democrat, obviously serving in the South. And for, for Joe Biden, if he's wanting to win over some Trump voters, he needs to be reaching moderates and not calling them, you know, semi-fascists or lumping them in with Trump. And I just don't know that that language does anything to bring yeah. them... But
2: do not moderate Republicans think of themselves as MAGA Republicans?
9: Well, they think of themselves as Republicans. 74 million people voted for Trump, and most of them, in fact, maybe some didn't vote for Trump, then went ahead and voted for a whole bunch of other Republicans down the ballot. They think of themselves as Republicans. So if you're living in one of these purple states where these Senate races are going on, you're not going into the ballot box thinking, well, let's see, which facts of the Republican Party? Might-? No, you're you're thinking about, I generally believe in a conservative direction for the country, The Democrat generally believes in a liberal direction for the country. And so that's what I'm going to prefer today. That doesn't make me a fascist. It just makes me a Republican or a conservative. And that's how they're going to cast their votes. And for Joe Biden, by the way, who ran as, I'm going to unite the country. We're not going to have meanness and divisiveness in the Oval Office to call half the country fascist. I I mean, it's totally out of
8: character. He He is not calling half the country fascist. He is calling these people that are running as fascists. Or anti, you know. Well, you should say it that way. Yeah, I I mean, he is calling this group of people like Mastriano, like Masters, like McMullen in in Oklahoma. He's calling that, and they are leading the Republican tickets. And I completely disagree with you, Scott, that they're going to come in and they're going to not think about that because this is not your conservative party of the past. It is not the party of small government. It is the party that is stripping people of rights. It is the party that is trying to take away election. Uh, uh, the, uh with all these election deniers and taking away the right to vote this is a different party that is the loudest and in control so that's where i think the, that the president is making a very strong point and it's going to come down to every state and people are going to look at it and if and they're going to compare with a candidate that is from the Democratic side that is getting things done, that are moving for people that they don't always agree with on everything, but they are scared to death of this other group that is trying to take control of this. Well,
7: thing. and I'm, I'm a fierce critic of Donald Trump. I think he's wholly unfit to ever be in office again. I worry. I think your clarification is, is helpful and that's something Joe Biden should say. What I worry is. This is similar to Hillary Clinton's deplorable comment that actually animated the Trump base and actually animated Republicans to say, well, if we're all looked at as deplorables or as semi-fascist, then screw the Democrats, why would I ever consider voting with them? Yeah, I think I, it's divisive in a way that's
2: totally unhelpful. I, I hear that, but I also take a step back and think, it seems very clear we've heard over the course of many months, let alone years, those who are, who from a Mitch McConnell in your home state, for example, does not think of himself in the same category as perhaps uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene or as more MAGA-related Republicans, right? It's not so shocking that there would be a distinction made. So I wonder, is it the fact that it came from Biden who articulated the distinction or the fact that sort of the behind the curtain is, I mean, just as Democrats, AOC, so to speak, does not think of herself the same way as even a Joe Biden. There is distinction. Why is this particular aspect so offensive? Well,
9: first of all, it's not up to Joe Biden to sort out the Republicans. I, I, I sincerely doubt that if you handed him a list of Republican candidates for various offices, he would go, this one's good, this one's bad, this one's good. They're, to him, they're all bad. They're Democrats, they're partisans, they're trying to win elections. He, it's, and it's not up to him. But I think every election cycle we play this game, Democrats and other people who help the Democrats try to get Republicans to fight each other and to divide amongst ourselves. Joe, uh, Donald Trump, is not on the ballot. He is an important figure in the Republican Party. But there's so much more at stake than petty uh, internal fighting. But that's what they want us to focus on instead of the issues yeah. like economy, inflation. Like, and like
8: Republicans else. calling me a socialist and wanting to defund the police. That doesn't happen with the Republican Party. <laughs> Come on, Scott, give me a break. I mean, everybody, it's the same thing. And you're, you're going to define the people that are about, uh, with a party that are the loudest uh, and that are getting the control of the party right now. And that happens to be the MAGA faction. And, and by the way, let me quickly add, I think that that's dangerous. I don't like that. I want a healthy two-party system. I'd love to see the Who's in
9: control of the Democratic Party right now?
8: I don't know if there is a control of the Democratic Party, but I'll tell you this, we finally are starting to get things done. It's not the left and the right fighting like they did in the first half of the uh, Biden administration. We're moving uh, legislation. We're getting a governing majority. They're getting things done for the American people. Inflation is getting under control. We're producing jobs left in in historic uh, 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 records. So the Democrats
2: are coming together in their Big Ten, and they're getting things done. Well— That's where Biden left off after the comment that made everyone chatter a little bit. Thank you, everyone, (laughs) about that. You went right to the policies. Look, coming up, another big issue, culture wars. A teacher who had a novel approach to a book ban but decided she'd rather quit than censor what her students could actually read. A high school teacher in Oklahoma quit her job this week over the state's new legal restrictions on teaching about race and about gender. Norman High School English teacher, Summer Boimier, says she and her colleagues were asked to hide or remove books that could challenge the law. Boimier chose to hide the books behind the sign, books the state doesn't want you to read. She says she was placed on leave for that display, a claim the district denies. Boimier ultimately decided to resign and she joins me now. Summer, nice to see you, but I I remember a time when I was in grade school and beyond and you get your books and you take like paper bags to cover them because you had to pass them on to the next person. It's a whole new level now having to cover up these books because they're banned. I mean, what has that been like for you knowing that you love teaching to have to make this difficult choice to say, I can't teach like this?
10: Yeah, um, well, thank you for uh, having me on and, and uh, you know, giving me this platform to, to center the, the plight, uh, you know, of our public school students and to put some respect on our teachers' names. Um, I can speak for myself, uh, you know, as I, I teach in Oklahoma, this, uh, this idea of, of book banning and, and censorship and the restriction, ultimately, of, of what we as, as a society value as far as which identities um, are we going to enfranchise, which identities um, are we going to say matter? Um, this has been a long simmering issue um, in Oklahoma public schools. It's been a long simmering issue in many public schools. I know that educators in Florida right now are, um, you know, currently uh, dealing with uh, some troubling restrictions on on curriculum and social studies and then you have the the don't say gay bill um at the end of the day what this comes down to um our our students and and their stories and and what are we going to value what are we going to communicate to our students as far as what is significant so my objective uh, as an English teacher, uh, in interacting with a variety of texts in my classroom, is always, uh, you know, I'm not really concerned with whether students walk out of my classroom uh, remembering that a simile is a comparison using the words like or as. What I'm concerned you want about you want is exposure. that students walk out of that. Right, right. I want, I want students to be able to walk out of my classroom. Um, with the the tools that they need to talk to the world, to ask the summer, questions. Let me ask um, you, I and to you. Let me ask you and,
2: I, and books and stories are vital. I hear you. I want to ask you though, in that in that sense. Um, and what's so disappointing, given that that is your mission, I don't want to cut you off. You know, the fact that you have now chosen to leave does, in a sense, remove that opportunity for many of the students to have a teacher like that, like you which is a very difficult choice to make, what do you say to the retort and response, though, that many have, which is, look, I understand that, but if you're working for a community and they have decided that certain curriculum should not be a part of their, of their children's experience, then you must abide by that. Why do you think that's not the approach to take, that you don't have to just sort of succumb and acquiesce to what they want you to say or not?
10: Um, so uh, again, the, uh, you know, and I'm aware of, of community sentiment and, and how vital community participation is in our public schools. There are our parents and guardians out there who have tr- offered tremendous support. And I genuinely thank those people. Um, <clears throat> but you know, what I, what I always err on, I'm not trying to parent anyone's child. Um, my job is to create a space where we can learn together um, about ourselves and each other. And it is not my place to uh, decide which identities matter and which ones don't. Every single time, the classroom is an inherently political space. I go back to um, James Baldwin's A Talk uh, to Teachers. Silence Mm. is a position. It's a privileged position. Um, and so I have to choose, and, and yeah. teachers have to choose. Are we going to be silent, or are we going to err on the side of, of compassion, of empathy, and
2: inclusion?
10: Summer, I, find, I think it's, a, you know, the, it's really
2: important the what you said. around that. I, I yeah. do hear you, Summer, I, but I think what I, what I find really striking is the idea of the classroom as being inherently political. Um, and the, given what you talked about, I, and unfortunately we're at a space where I don't doubt that that is in fact the case, but that ought not to be where we are mm-hmm. in education. Summer Boise, um, Boise May, thank you so much for joining the program. I appreciate it.
10: My pleasure. Thank so, you for having me. Still to come,
2: a political feud getting more intense as Texas sends more and more migrants to New York. New tonight, President Biden's Homeland Security Secretary is blasting Texas Governor Greg Abbott for busing more and more migrants from his state to the Northeast. New York City officials say a record 237 migrants arrived via private bus just yesterday, and about that many were expected today. They say this is overwhelming local agencies, while DHS Chief Alejandro Mayorkas tells CNN's Rosa Flores that Abbott's stunt is throwing the federal system out of whack.
11: It is problematic, however, when an official works uh, not in collaboration with us, uh, but unilaterally. And that lack of coordination wreaks problems in our very efficient processing.
2: He also responded to criticism that the administration isn't doing enough. Back here, Miles Taylor, who worked at DHS. He's back with me now, along with Doug Jones and David Swerdlick. David is senior staff editor at The New York Times. What strikes you about this?
11: So it is a stunt and it is using people as pawns, Laura. But I'm surprised a Republican border state governor hasn't come up with this sooner. It's working for Abbott because he knows that by and large, Republican voters are not going to punish him for doing this. And he knows that Democrats, including the president, including Mayor Adams in New York, including Mayor Bowser in DC, who are going to have to absorb these migrants, at least temporarily, have to sort of straddle the fence. And appease Democratic voters on the one hand, and not alienate swing voters on the other hand, who think immigration is an
8: issue.
2: So, kind of put your resources where your politics are, yeah. so to
11: speak. Yeah, it's a
8: tough. I mean, look, it's really tough. I agree. It's it's a it's a stunt, but at the same time, it's also drawing attention to a really broken system that we've got. I you know, I, I really think this whole the issue about. Uh, asylum seekers and the refugees. I mean, these are not people that are traditionally those folks that are blending into society. They're crossing at their own peril, their own risk with their young children, and then they're stopping and being arrested because they want a better life. They want to come in. And this is really a pox on everybody's house right now because we have not had the ability to come together. It's been politicized beyond belief these days. And the pawns that these folks, the bodies that we're seeing is just atrocious and Rather than politicizing this, those images ought to get both houses of Congress and get parties, both the parties together and say, we we can't allow this humanitarian issue to continue to go.
6: Exactly. And regardless of what side of the aisle you're on, it is a crisis. Okay, from the humanitarian standpoint, you've got two million people that are on pace this year to come into the United States through the back door instead of the front door. Why do we have a system that incentivizes people to do that through a very dangerous route? where kids are abused, women are attacked, it's an extremely dangerous route. From the border security side, no one wants two million people coming into the back door instead of the front door. That's just not safe. That's not a way to run a country. It's a crisis whatever way you cut it. But again, to the question of the third rail, that's why no one's doing anything about it. Hell, half the people don't want to come on TV to talk about immigration because they're so scared. (laughs) Congress doesn't want to talk about immigration. I mean, I'm not going to put this on the senator. I would be curious to ask his question, why didn't his colleagues fix this? And I suspect one of the reasons is because they don't want to talk about it. Enough. Talk about it. We got to talk about it. What's the
11: the scary part? You got to talk about it. But accept that. Okay, you had President Obama, the most charming politician on planet Earth, who was called the deporter in chief by progressives, even though he was a progressive or democratic hero. On the other hand, you had uh, attempts in 2006, 2013 to do bipartisan comprehensive immigration reform. The lesson that President Trump learned was don't do it because it, did, it was not popular with his hardcore republican And that's focus. exactly
8: right. And that's the one bill in 2018 that we did work on, a bipartisan group of senators, 24, 25 of us, put something on the table that initially Donald Trump said he wanted. It would do, it would DACA issues. It would put money on the border. It would have done a lot of things and got people talking to move. At the last minute, he came in and threw some poison pills and it derailed.
6: Oh, I, I, I personally think Trump could have had a Nixon goes to China moment Absolutely. on immigration. He could have, he could have been, but he could have been that type of person that everyone thought was so extreme and fix this. Now, did did he know? I mean, he was a disaster. I, I personally believe Trump wanted to pursue Nazi-like immigration policies, and I don't say that facetiously. I mean, I really think it was that twisted. He wanted to use migrants as pawns in far worse ways. In fact, at one point, he told us he wanted to bus literally only the murderers and the rapists to democratic cities to commit crimes to put pressure. That is sick. That is sick stuff. But but here we are again, migrants still being used as pawns. These aren't pawns. These are people. Let's figure out this problem realizing these are people. And that's where people, are, folks are too scared to go out and talk about it. The, they days. are people.
11: And you were there, Miles, I know. I do just think, though, that President Trump realized that his brand was, I'm going to build a wall. I'm going to do everything oh, I sure. can. And that overwhelmed the part of him, whatever part, that yeah. wanted to be compassionate on this or that issue.
6: And, I don't and think there was a part, David, of him that wanted to be compassionate. <laughs> okay. and, and I also don't say okay. that jokingly. Yeah. I, I didn't see any sign for, for that there was a purposes, desire. I'm not, you know. but, but hopefully we can learn from that. And, and, and hopefully, as the senator suggests, there are members of Congress ready still to step forward. Um, sadly, they're just looking for someone to give them political air cover.
8: Miles, yeah. real, real quick. I, I agree with you that in part our system incentivizes. But let's face it. At the end of the day, America... And who we are incentivizes these people. Yes, they are looking. They are running away from some tragedy and yep. oppression, and it's this country that incentivizes them. And I think if we would recognize that more, and try to do more for these people in their countries, and do some things, we can we could fix this. But we, we got to recommend we should be proud. people to want student. to come here. Absolutely,
2: yeah, appropriately absolutely. said by a man with a flag on his <laughs> lapel. Everyone: Miles Taylor, Doug Jones, David Twardlick, Thank you so much. We'll be right back.